Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast with Sports Pro Editor Owen Connolly, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of the Sports Pro Podcast. Uh, joining me as ever is Sports Pro Deputy Editor Adam Nelson. Hi Adam. Good afternoon. And with us again is unofficial partner Richard Gillis. Hi Richard. Hello there. And back from the Sports Pro Podcast wilderness, Nielsen Sports Global Communications Director, David Kushner. Welcome back, David. Hello, Owen. Great to be here. Great to be here indeed. Um, right, we've, we've had a, a few weeks since, since the last podcast and we're, we're deep into 2017, but uh, 2016 has come back with a vengeance to reclaim the goodwill around Leicester City and specifically uh, the job of Leicester City manager Claudio Ranieri who was sacked this week as we're speaking um, with Leicester plummeting towards the relegation zone in the Premier League. Um, it's, it's a sad story, I think, for everybody concerned. I don't know that it's how anybody would have wanted that particular fairy tale to, you know, the, the postscript that anyone would have particularly wanted for that one. But it's also one that speaks to... The ruthlessness of, um, of elite sport, and it's one that, that speaks to the conversations that people like Richard Gillis have been having around leadership and the narratives that, that build up to support it. Richard. That was a nice way in, yes, to the, uh, the captain myth, I think is what you were referring to. There's a, there's, a, there's a number of things here, a number of themes, as you've mentioned, going on. Just to sort of step back from Ranieri. So Ranieri is, is a, um, you know, is a classic case study of, of rise and fall and a creation of, of a hero and then um, a sort of demolition of him. There's a, there's a thing going on where we are obsessed with leadership as a topic and the, my book is, is a bit about that. So it's saying, well, what, how, when did we start to become so interested in the sort of... And, just in the building the cult of, of leaders and managers. And the football manager is important in this story because it reaches so many people. So sports global profile just amplifies these issues. These are, these are things like strategy and management and leadership and motivation theory and performance. These were sort of the remit of, of you know, the business book, business scores, and now that's pretty much, you know, leads the conversation around sport. And so the way in which most people think about those subjects is defined by, and you know, football and by sport. So most, oh, well, I say most, a lot of people um, look at people like Alex Ferguson, Wenger, Mourinho, Guardiola, Ranieri. These are what a leader looks and sounds like. And it's a very narrow definition. Um, it's a flawed definition. No one, you know, is saying that leadership doesn't exist or leadership doesn't um, have some impact, but it certainly is overrated. It's hugely overrated, and we're getting worse at, you know, using managers and leaders of companies and presidents of countries um, as the lens through which we, we the whole debate is is. Um, held. So that's, you know, that's part of what's going on here. There's been a sort of trend towards um, the, the, the cult of the leader because things have just got so much more complicated. Football has got quicker. It's harder to work out what's going on. And the easy solution is to blame 
and credit the manager. So every journalist after a sports event, whether it's a Ryder Cup or whether it's a test match or whether it's a rugby international or whether it's a Premier League football match, we all make a mistake um, on the final whistle. And the, the mistake that we make is to attribute all the credit to the winning manager and all the blame to the losing one. And at that moment, two stories are given life, which then are very, very difficult to um, prevent, which is one is the good manager and the other is the bad manager. And, and as we go through, did Ranieri win the Premier League, as, as is all over the newspapers and Twitter today? He won the, the, you know, the Premier League last year and now he's got the sack. He didn't win the Premier League last year. He was the manager of the team that won the Premier League, and that is a different um, framing of his job. And, and it's important to make that distinction because every time we jump to that attribution error, we are building up problems for later on. Yeah, I mean, what's particularly striking about this story, if we walk it back to a year ago, is that Ranieri was a high-end manager at a team that wasn't used to having that kind of manager, but he was, you know, he was kind of in the right place at the right time. He had the right personality to be able to corral this group of mostly journeyman players in having the time of their lives and suddenly getting their once-in-a-lifetime shot at doing something extraordinary. And he was the right guy for that moment. And now he's kind of the wrong guy for the moment and the structure around him isn't as supportive. He's lost key staff, they've lost key players. The players who are there maybe have been demotivated by the fact that you know they're back for another slog. They've, they've all had huge new increases in salary but have probably passed up their chance to move on to yeah, other uh, environments. All of, that, I, you know, all of that is our stories that you're making up to justify the result, mm. as in Ranieri's sacking, you know, the rise and fall of Ranieri. And those stories may or may well not be true, but the only evidence we've got is that Leicester did win the Premier League. Now, we can then say, we could go into you know, a great deal of analysis, there is no evidence to support that Ranieri was the difference between them winning... Premier League and not mm. um, there is you know the, his predecessor the team the success of Jamie Vardy the, this this you know the the finding of Mares all of these things the injury free season that they had sheer dumb luck all of those elements are are in there mm. as well as Ranieri now Ranieri is someone who um, through a different lens could be the luckiest manager ever. Mm. He jumped into a job where all, you know, a lot of the, the team had come together. There was a team spirit there, and away we go. Of course, it was a fantastic story, it's a brilliant story, and we, you know, it, but we don't know what the impact of the leader was on the way up, and the fact that they're going on the way down. You know, I agree with most of the sentiment in the room and, and you know in the in the media that it was a really crap decision. It was a terrible decision for lots of different reasons. Fundamentally, because you don't know what the impact of the manager is, so it's just a, you know he was he deserved far far better than Leicester have mm. given him. But mm. David, uh, you know I agree with um, a lot of what Richard uh, said, and I think he mentioned he uh, published a book fairly recently on the subject yeah, as well. I, I very judiciously chose not to mention that, but but he got the plug in anyway. So fair play to him. <laughs> it's uh, that's top notch uh, plugging. Um, I mean, you, you said it was a, a terrible decision, and I think emotionally, you know, I think we would all be agreed that 
that it is, but it does underline the, you know, I think you used the word earlier, the, the ruthlessness and, and the, the reality of the modern football world, the modern media landscape, and the, uh, you know, I remember not that long ago when um, in England we would look at uh, Real Madrid managers being fired after they'd won European Cups, uh, you know, La Liga titles, and we would sort of sneer at that and go, that, you know, that's absolutely ludicrous and, and ridiculous. But, but that is the reality now in England and across many of the, the major clubs. And so I don't think we should be surprised that the, that the decision has, has not been made um, because... Uh, you know, of, of business reasons that the owners see. They believe that uh, it is not in the long-term interests of the club to get relegated with all the financial mm. you know, repercussions that there are there. And that's, that's fair enough. But from on that emotional level, particularly in this case, because it was, you know, the once-in-a-lifetime 5,000-to-1 shot and he's, he, you know, he's, he comes across as a, you know, a, publicly as a a very charming, you know, uh, nice man, and he sort of captured the heart of the nation. Mm. Um, there's a lot of a bad feeling towards it. But with, a, a, you know, from the owner's point of view, they're taking a gamble that uh, hopefully will result in them staying up. They, they believe they will have a better chance to, to stay up with all the, the financial issues that that will, um, or financial benefits that that will bring. And um, I, I suspect, though, they have underestimated the strength of feeling mm. in in the country, and that doesn't really matter, you know, in the football world, but amongst their their fans. Um, and he was he he probably should have been allowed the opportunity to um, be relegated. Mm. But, you know, if, if if their job was to protect the brand of Leicester, then they've done a terrible job as well. You know, because mm. they didn't fundamentally didn't understand what the brand was. In you know, the fact, they won the Premier League as made them famous in places that people hadn't, didn't know where Leicester was. Um, <laughs> the idea that if they go down, that, you know, they're, they're trying to protect... If, it, if, if their response was in any way brand-related, um, i.e. keeping them in the Premier League and whatever, then they've made a terrible mistake yeah. because they've, they've, they've crucified it overnight. Well, if, if, they had, sorry, if they had gone down, doesn't that, doesn't that counterbalance that? Because with Renier in charge, they probably would go down. They've been terrible for six weeks. Is it better to preserve the brand or to keep the club in the Premier League? Which which one of those has more value? Um, <clears throat> I think the story of Leicester, the identity of the club, was the you know it's the Cinderella story, and it's there is an up and there is a down. The fact that you know if Chelsea win the Premier League this year, no one gets excited because. They should win it. Leicester is so completely romantic, but part of the story is that there has to be a down as well as an up. You know, so long term, I think they just—it's a really, really bad decision. I mean, there's two things at play here as well. We we don't know that Leicester would have necessarily been relegated. There might have been a change in fortunes. There's been some people who've suggested that there, just as there was a huge degree of statistical variation and anomaly to the fact that they won the league last year there's quite a lot of it working in the other direction this year and they're not perhaps as bad as 17th in the Premier League but leadership is one aspect of it and culture is the other and it feels like a football club it feels like an organisation where the culture has changed has been changed by that success last year and 
not change in the ways that, that people might have wanted it to. Who knows what has, has gone on behind closed doors at, at Leicester City, but I think more generally the, the model in all sports really, but particularly in football, has been there is a manager or a head coach however you, you term it, um, who is the, the leader, who is making all the decisions, and that is something that has endured for, for decades. At the top level, with the top professional clubs, what you actually have in reality now is these huge backroom teams. You have this much greater sharing of responsibility, but still you have these uh, front men whose job ultimately is to take all of that information and essentially sign the team sheet at the end. And, you know, they all do that in, in various different ways. Um, and they also, at the top level, have to be good communicators or good in front of the cameras or have a positive relationship with the media as much as, as, much as possible because they are, they are now considered currency. You know, we love it when uh, managers scrap with each other on the touchline and then go into press conferences and have a go at one another. You know, it's that you know the start of this season uh, in the Premier League in um, July and August. The talk wasn't about the players; it was all about the managers and this incredible you know selection of Galacticos. But I just wonder if we will ever get to a stage where there isn't that one single frontman. I don't know, Richard. You know, do you think we will ever? get to a stage where you've maybe got two or three people who are sort of sharing, you know, sharing the responsibility um, and, you know, being the public team that deal with the media, deal with um, all the, the various pressures, rather than it all sort of bottlenecking to this one single person. Yeah. Or indeed, do, do some of those responsibilities start to fall on somebody else who becomes the figurehead for the club in a way that perhaps, you know, the owner of an NFL franchise is... It's, it, it's, a, you know, it's a good question because there's a sort of interesting um, sort of thought experiment, really. If you take away... I've always thought it's about the England manager or, or you know, a national team manager. The problem with the, the cult of the manager is that it's selling a very old idea. You know, it's an idea that all the power and decision-making and the creativity resides at the top and that's sent downwards and the players are sort of demoted to almost pawns in the game. You know, you, you watch a rugby match now and, you, and, and the coaches are behind the screen and they're looking at iPads and laptops and, and moving players around. And, and actually, it's not a correct sort of uh, analysis. And actually, the, the, again, if you, if you listen to someone like Eddie Jones, for example, who is going for a purple patch and, you know, he's winning, so, it's, again, there is a cult building around him... However, what he's saying, if you listen to him, is that actually it's all about the team. It's about people, you know, giving people responsibility on the pitch. They are the people that are out there. They have to make decisions in real time. The captain is, or the lead, or the coach and the, or the manager is someone who has to deal with the media, who has to be the front person. He has taken Mourinho's lightning rod idea of management, you know, that all the, the, the uh, controversy create, controversy make me the story... The media loves it because you get great stories. Um, but actually, in reality, on the field of play, you've got people who are taking responsibility. Now, one of the, the, the points I make quite often is that, you know, look at England playing Iceland in the Euros 
And that felt like a lot of people who hadn't taken responsibility for much, either on the pitch or off the pitch, frankly. And it, it speaks to football, but it also is something that comes up in business a lot, which is giving people, anyone, the responsibility to solve a problem rather than... One of, one of, the, one of the great quotes is, is, is so uh, Mark Hamill is a... Um, Skywalker. <laughs> Gary Hamill. <laughs> Mark Hamill was, was great in his own way on leadership. But Gary Hamill was even better. Professor Gary Hamill, he, his view is that you know, the, the Egyptians, ancient Egyptians would recognise the business model of, of most businesses and football teams today, i.e. You know, the power resides at the top and it's just sent downwards. It's, it's not, if you look at places like IBM, Google, they are preaching something else. You know, so the follower, and followership is a terrible, terrible word, but actually is more significant here as every day passes. It's, it's what people do in organisations, how they respond to direction and the responsibility they take within the, the um, you know, it, it isn't about hierarchy. And so that's a very important point. Sport should be preaching that because that's, it's about team sport, you know, but it's the media and, you know, as journalists, we're very guilty of this, not just in sport, in business, we do mm. it all the time, and in politics... Um, we are focusing on individuals, and that's dangerous. Okay, um, I think we can insert our uh, endearingly onomatopoeic reference to an alarm clock here, uh, because that is the end of part one. Join us in a sec. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. Um, Adam Nelson, I remember the last podcast of last year, one of your New Year's resolutions was to somehow engineer Budapest being given the 2024 Olympic Games. Not going to happen. Well, we all break our resolutions, don't we? Um, Yeah, unnervingly early every year, yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's February, so... So, it's, uh, yeah, I mean... The Budapest 2024 bid has been pulled uh, due to an incoming citywide referendum. Um, and the field is down to two, David. It's the two who most expected would be in the final running anyway. It's now the two who most expect will be given, or many expect will be given, back-to-back Olympics in 2024 and 2028, assuming that the various political machinations can be executed. What does this mean for the Olympic movement, what does it mean for Olympic bidding? Well, it's not ideal, is it? Um, I think the first thing to say is that, there is, you're right, there's a lot of talk that um, now there's only two cities uh, remaining about whether it can be engineered so that I think Paris would host the 2024 Games and Los Angeles in 2028. I suspect that's going to be a difficult thing to get the IOC members to vote for, as they will mm. have to do, to fundamentally change, well, to essentially not have a bidding process yeah. for the I mean, it, it feels like an executive idea rather than a, a membership idea. If I were an IOC member, I'd think that one of the real perks would be voting on which city would host the Olympics and, and feel like I had a had a stake in that decision. So okay, I'm not, can I just ask quickly there, why, why do you think it's so unlikely? Because it seems to me that they have two massive global historical cities that have both hosted successful Olympics in the past. Why, at a time when they're struggling for hosts, why would they pass up the opportunity to name those two cities as the hosts of the next two, or sorry, not the next two, but the preceding two Olympics? 
I think it's a very sensible idea, and it is probably they will probably end up with it as the only really viable option for exactly the reasons you say. The IOC, I think, traditionally has been very cautious, and the way it's structured makes big, grand decision-making a difficult thing to do. You know, let's see how it plays out. My, I, I would just suspect that there would be a bit of pushback from IOC members who would be, you know, wondering how influential they're going to be for the next few years um, if there's no bidding process for, for 2028. Clearly what you've got here is a situation where, you know, Budapest, a, I suppose you would describe them as a sort of mid-sized city, mm-hmm. um, has, uh, for a variety of reasons, unable, been unable to, to go the distance. There's, we know about all the various referendums that have happened across Europe over the past, what, two, three years. There is a sentiment that the... Olympic Games are way too costly at a time when money could be spent in all manner of different ways. Um, uh, so there's a big issue in Europe um, if you if you take Paris out of the situation. You know the Paris and LA bids are strong insofar as they are two world cities, two big cities, lots of existing facilities. Um, but the, there's, each of them has issues that we know about, security issues, potential political issues. So it's, it's a very tricky situation for the IOC, given that they traditionally have been a very cautious organisation. You know, it's extremely disappointing and they're on, a, they're on a, a road to nowhere if we end up in a situation where only world cities are able to bid for the Olympics because they have existing uh, facilities, because they have the existing infrastructure. That's not a good situation to be in when you want, you know, large fields of bidders or, you know, more than two bidders at at any one time. Um, And there's a limited number of world cities, Mm. you know, and a lot of them are already down to host Olympic Games. If you look at Beijing and Tokyo, and we've just had London. So very, very tricky situation. I think in the not too distant future if it's not happening already and i don't think it is really happening already there has to be a lowering of expectations about what a modern olympic games looks like among all olympic stakeholders and that includes the media it includes the athletes it includes the cities themselves and it includes um sponsors and also the ioc you know that's easy to say but how you actually do that I'm not sure. I think at this point you need to separate what Budapest's bid was and Budapest's capabilities of hosting the Olympics was, at least in the way that they were going to host it or thinking about hosting it, from the public perception of the Games. Because it is the public perception that ultimately is, has done for a number of these bids because they had no chance of winning referendum. Um, so Budapest wanted to do a, a post-Agenda 2020 compact, modular bid that was planned into a, you know, a, a programme of events going on 15 years. They had quite astute leadership who were trying to do what they could to present that vision. Um, but ultimately, some leadership's got to come from the IOC here, and they've got to show, surely, that they are, they're able to hold up their end of the bargain, basically. There's a, there's a, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, this is about the IOC, you know, and this is about Olympism. The, the, this is the danger, and we're there already, is that... Um, the big sport, the Olympics and FIFA being the obvious examples, are seen as the sort of marketing arm of, of globalisation. And, and, you know, that 
we know for <clears throat> throughout the big moments of Trump and Brexit and whatever, that is a difficult argument to get across. And, and I think that they've got a, you know, that's what they are um, to, a, to, a, to a large extent. That's what they've wanted to be. And so I think one of the things that, that um, they might then think about is, okay, a rotor, because it's so bloody expensive to do these events. You know, why not have a... Why is there um, a sort of assumption that it's going to go to a different city each time? You know, why not have mm. a small number of, of cities in one city in each continent that, that well, hosts there, it? There is no, there is no rule. <coughs> there is no rule that says, you know, there's no convention. Well, it is the convention, but there's no rule that says they have to have a bidding race. You know, if they want, you know, it's, it's their event. If they want to put it anywhere and they can get the host to agree to do it, then they will. And I was just thinking before the, the podcast as I did some uh, preparation for it, which That's was completely against the spirit of things. Yeah, yeah. And I was just trying to think, let's say uh, Paris, Paris host 2024 uh, LA is given 2028, so then you get to 2032, and obviously we are years away from uh, 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 even beginning to think about who would host that. But if you just if you looked at it today and said, okay, in the current Olympic format with the the costs we know about, with the venue requirements that are needed, things like a velodrome, things like an Olympic stadium, you know, the athletes' village, and the, you know, the whole the whole thing. Who, which cities would would be putting their name forward? And I, you know, if you if you're thinking about it today, I can't think of a European city that would do it. I, I you know, maybe London. Um, I'm not. I, you know, Asia. The Asia swing of Olympics mm. is is, you know, just about to start. North America will have just had the games, so I think you're probably looking at. Maybe Australia, because there's a, there's a lot mm. of facilities in Melbourne or Sydney or the Gold Coast where they're having the Commonwealth Games. You're maybe looking, you're maybe banking on one of those sort of big money, ambitious bids from, from the Middle East. But other than that, there's not a lot of yeah. options. I think we're, we're talking about countries that have recently hosted the Olympics and would like to do so again. I think Beijing is the big one where they would clearly, if they could host... Um, 2020, they would go for it. Um, they they want as much of that kind of soft power display that the Olympics gives them as they can possibly get their hands on. Mm. And uh, they're not, and you know, it's also not going to come down to public referendum in Beijing, uh, sadly. I don't I don't think the Olympics is going to get smaller anytime soon. I think there's too many pressures and there's too many federations who want their sports to be at the Olympics and they need a certain amount of athletes and therefore you need a certain amount of venues. I think inevitably what's going to happen is the IOC is going to have to become more, uh, much more open to countries bidding, to regions bidding, to um, two different cities, maybe two cities in different countries You know that are relatively close together bidding. That's got to be... Um, the future. I think the other thing, just to mention from the city's point of view, just going back to Budapest, a lot of these cities now um, are well aware of the you know, uh, positive economic impact major events can have. And what we've seen, I think, is a trend for, in a lot of the um, Olympic sports and some of the non-Olympic sports, um, uh, much, um, much more understanding of 
the economic impact that some of these events can can deliver. A lot of these world championships, you know, look at the uh, uh, the skiing world championships in San Moritz last week, which looked terrific on TV and it looked like a really well organised, well run, highly professional event. Those that level of events, sort of world championship level, are professionalising. The cities, for their part, have much more joined up event strategies and they understand what level of of economic impact, social impact, uh, legacy that those second secondary tier of events can can offer. And I think in a lot of cases, like with Budapest and the, the FINA um, mm. World Aquatics Championship, they're thinking, well, hang on, I can host, you know, I can build a venue for a single sport. I can host a really good event. I'm going to get all sorts of great TV coverage because everything is on TV if it's a sort of relatively high level of sport. And I'm going to get enough of an impact to justify it without thinking about bidding for one of these multi-sport games. And I think that's probably happening. That's the kind of thought process that's going on in a lot of these cities. Let's let's not forget that (laughs) Budapest wasn't going to have these FINA championships. It was supposed to have 2019, um, and it brought them forward to help its Olympic bid. So it is that kind of odd thing where... The, the idea was to make it into more of a sporting destination. Um, I don't think we all acknowledge that Budapest probably wasn't going to win that the bid, even if it had seen it through to September. It was about making Budapest somewhere that federations would look at as, as hosting their events, and it's done that through with with the FINA Championships, or hopefully will when they when they take place. But has it kind of shot itself in the foot, given that the, the public sentiment is so against the Olympics? Mm. Well, I mean, th- this is the thing. It, Budapest are insisting, or they were earlier this week when I was there. Um, they were insisting that they will come back, that this is a, a lifetime ambition for Budapest. They, they, they made a lot of play of the fact that they are the highest-ranked Olympic nation never to host the Olympics. They're somewhere like eighth in the all-time medal table. But um, for most most of these cities, they are going to think, well, you know, host a Euro 2020 game, host a, a World Championships in a single sport, the Olympics isn't really worthwhile. So that could leave... The Olympics, I mean, we, we're now potentially looking at 10 years without bidding for uh, a Summer Games. Is that the end for bidding for Summer Games? Are we now going to see the, the IOC maybe select cities rather than elect cities and, and work with them? Would that be a more sustainable model to say, you know, we'd like to do one in Cape Town and we'll build the stadiums and we'll, or, you know, modular stadiums and, and so on? Or could, to build on David's idea a little bit and something that... Um, I had a couple of conversations with people about in Rio and, and I mentioned in a, a column I did a couple of weeks ago, you just scrap the idea of single hosts all together and the Olympics becomes a TV event. Now, that you know, you have basically a series of concurrent world championships happening in cities around the world under the, the Olympic rings. It would get rid of a lot of what the Olympics has been about, the, the kind of communal aspect of it, but is that the, is that the only way it's going to survive in kind of 40, 50 years' time? Maybe. I sort of hope not. I like the idea of there being, uh, whether it's, you know, and it may well end up being a region rather than a city, but I like the idea of there being a sort of focal point. You know, I, we, you know certainly when I was, was growing up, you learn about these cities. It's, you know, yes, the sport is fantastic, and the, you know, but you, you learn a bit about these cities. You know, t- okay. I, think, I think there is actually an opportunity, and I, th- I think there was some evidence of it happening around London in the sort of seven years of build-up. In, in London there's such an opportunity I think for the IOC to um, really uh, Im- improve their 
the way that they can use these host cities as an educational tool as well. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity when the Olympics are going to Tokyo for them to create some sort of curriculum or module yeah. that, that, you know, talks about, talks about Japan. Richard, yeah. you're going to say that's a terrible well, no, I'm just going to say one thing, is that this conversation, it's like going back, you know, we could have had this conversation. When Jack Rogger was made head of the IOC, this was exactly what he was saying. And, you know, we're now in the Bach era, and it's not changed. You know, it's, in fact, it's got... It just hasn't happened. It's just the, the sort of corporate ego of the IOC is immense, and the, and the, the, the sort of industry that has grown around it. And there are still going to be cities who will cough up for it. You know, it just depends on, you know, what, at what point they say, well, actually, do we want to go to Kazakhstan? You know, that's the question for the IOC, because actually well, that that's was, the future. What I was going to add there, which ties together what David was saying with what we were saying earlier about uh, a city making itself a sporting destination, I remember the first time I heard the word Sochi was because of the Winter Olympics. I'd never heard of the place before that. It was never on my radar. And you never heard of it again. No. <laughs> well, it's, but it's now got a Grand Prix. It's, mm. it's, uh, it's had a... Um... And, and Pyeongchang is a perfect example. Yeah. Pyeongchang, you know... Uh, Pyeongchang, not Pyongyang. Absolutely not. But, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, we will all learn a bit more about that over the, the next year and about the, the city. And I think that's... You know, that's a very romantic... Yeah, there's no, there's no economics behind that, as Richard so neatly pointed out. But I think, um, I think it's important uh, to recognise that. The, the big issue is I can't see a way that the IOC can tinker too much with the format of the Olympic Games that, you know, they've sort of got it down pat, you know, they, you know, down to, uh, you know, every single session is, is accounted for. And there's so much, as I said earlier, there's so much pressure, you know, from sports federations who want to be part of this great Olympic party and they want the, the associated revenues, of course, and the profile. I just don't see how an organization known for its caution makes the kind of changes that are, are probably needed. Right. Well, there we go. That's uh, quite the point to wrap up part two. We'll be back in just a moment. Bit of housekeeping to attend to before we get on with the rest of today's podcast. Uh, Sports Pro Live, our annual flagship conference, will be returning to Wembley Stadium on the 29th and 30th of March. We've got a, a great event in prospect with the likes of WADA President Sir Craig Reedy, uh, ICC Chief Executive David Richardson, uh, Chatri Sityotong, the founder of Asian MMA's One Championship and the current Sports Pro cover star. Um, we've got representatives from the likes of the UFC, AC Milan, uh, the Seattle Sounders, BT Sport, Eurosport, Sky Sports, uh, the EuroLeague, the America's Cup, um, much, much more. So there's Plenty of reasons to join us. Um, head to sportsprolive.com to find out how you can be there too. Now, Richard, about a year ago at Sports Pro Live, I'm doing what the American political commentators call a pivot. About a year ago at Sports Pro Live, you were speaking to Keith Pelly, the chief executive of the European Tour. Um, European Tour's just launched its latest innovation, the uh, golf sixes. Well, it's, it's relatively simple. It's six-hole golf um, it's trying to fit four-day sort of, you know, or, or trying to get away from the um, 
uh, four-day, 72-hole stroke play, which dominates the tours and is, you know, the, the structure of, of how we recognise it golf to be. I think Keith Pelly has come in with lots of different ideas. I liked him when I met him, actually. Um, you know, it's obviously a false thing <laughs> on a stage in front of... 200 people, but I did like him. We didn't get to know each other very well, it must be said. But um, it was one of those where I thought we had lots of new ideas. He was a completely different, fresh voice. He comes from a from a you know a background of you know, it's golfers content, and that's a sort of when you're starting from that perspective is you know obviously we're looking at 2020 as the sort of analogy here, and that gets banded around a lot. Um, there is a sort of couple of interesting questions, I think, lurking around this, which is the shortening of, of golf and cricket and sport generally. Um, this assumption that, you know, it's got to fit into a particular time frame. The thing that I always say is that, you know, the assumption that millennials or the people coming after the millennials have got shorter attention spans is, is nonsense. Computer gaming, you know, runs against that very clearly. And esports is a you know goes on for days and days and you know mm. etc. So I think there's a there's a sort of tricky one there, and we need to be a bit careful with our you know the the the, the general assumption that short is good. But if it's the problem with golf sixes is that a lot of the good players didn't turn up. For this to work, and it's the same with sevens in rugby the very best players have got to play and they've got to be playing for real. So golf has had a number of goes at a 2020 you know, um, variant and they've not really worked because it hasn't been Ricky, Rory, Tiger and Jordan going down the stretch for serious money and world points and fame and you know all the stuff that they play for and history. So all of that is a problem it's a fire, you know. It's a nice start, but there is work to be done. And the the thing with 2020, and we've seen it over the last couple of weeks about the IPL and the IPL auction. This is proper money. The people mm. are getting rich, and so they're taking it seriously. Um, the problem with golf is that they're rich already. Yeah. So you don't need to, you know, you, it's very hard to incentivise um, Rory McIlroy with money because yeah. he's got a lot of it. Can I ask Richard a question about the uh, what's it called, Super Sixes? Yeah. So, uh, with with, the, with in terms of the format of that, does it change the way that golf is played? Because the, the thing that's great, I think, about T20 is that it's a different game to Test cricket. You're mm. playing it with a different mentality, and it's not just shorter and quicker. It's that the batsmen are going out with a completely different mentality. They're hitting sixes every over. Yeah. Surely, if the golf equivalent is just it's just played over a short time, there's no difference in the, in what in how it's actually played. That's a very good question, and and you're right in that no, it's the same. So it's it's golf, but just short. There's less of it. Mm. Um, whereas sevens and 2020 is you're, you're creating a different stream of player. I, I agree with you that that, um, that, that this attention span thing is nonsense. But surely, the the thing that they do want, if they do want something different from sport, is to be able to watch it in short bursts, not three hours of golf played in an afternoon as opposed to four days, but 30 seconds of uh, a great shot. Yeah. So just shortening the format like that doesn't seem to me to answer any of the questions. See, I, my, my take on this is that actually we might be just, it might be a blip. I think the, the most interesting thing, I think IPL is about money and not about cricket. I think that, you know, that actually 2020 is generating enormous amounts of interest because it's, there's so much money attached to it. <clears throat> I, I'm not sure about um, 
whether or not the 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 game fundamentally will you know is is going to change to the extent that you mm. think it is. The whole counter trend to this is slow sport. Mm. You know that that um, and golf is is an example of a sport that we we will probably come to luxuriate in four days of and you know, test cricket is the same. Mm. Whether there's the same audience for it is a, is a separate question. But actually, shortening it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to you know be packaged we all know it's you know it's got to be 90 minutes and it's going to be football and it's going to be you know young kids can't you know on twitter blah 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 but actually that you lose all the nuance mm. to it now michael long who is the our america's editor at sports pro and is also heading up a, a new venture we're doing called smart series which is kind of about the future of sport has a piece incoming where he's spoken to an academic called uh, timon de Jong. Um, about some of these issues and I about know Timon de Jong. he is he is a br- I think probably the best conference speaker I think I I, I got him to a couple of gigs mm. really really top top bloke what yeah. has Timon got to say well Timon was saying that there's while you're getting more people to watch short clips there's something ephemeral about it and you don't it doesn't live with people in the same way as a, watching a whole game or watching something like that I'm, unfold. I'm the first time I'm with Timon. Mm. So at Nielsen Sports obviously we um, <laughs> are looking constantly at all sorts of fan data and interpreting uh, it and sort of identifying some of the, the trends and what we're actually seeing is that across the board audience attention is being diluted. So people are intensely interested in fewer things, generally speaking, but people are generally interested in more things. So we are, we are because of changing technology. Did you get that, Richard? Do you want me to repeat that? I might need a, a solpadine and, and a sort of flowchart. No, this is, this is really interesting. Uh, people are intensely interested in fewer things, okay? Yeah. But people are generally interested in more things, and that clearly is because there is far more choice, so there's more clutter. So depth is what you're talking about. Exactly. So, you know, right. what this is doing, I think, is ratcheting up the pressure for rights holders to uh, think about all sorts of things, to think about moving events sort of beyond their traditional geographic boundaries, so NFL in London, NBA in London, uh, Premiership Rugby in New York, um, to try and sort of create a bit of a novelty factor and sort of lay some foundations in, in new markets and attract new fans. We also see sports events being relocated, so... Uh, the NHL Winter Classic played in a college football stadium or at a NASCAR track, um, city centre athletics, all of that sort of stuff. And we also are increasingly seeing this repackaging, which, which to be fair to cricket, they were way ahead of the, the curve on. Um, you know, Nitro Athletics has just launched fairly recently um, as something new in, in track and field with, with new types of events, more mixed events. And and you know a bit of dry ice and music and and so this reap you know this these changing habits because of new technology more access to um you know to consume something whenever wherever i think is is really forcing rights holders to rethink mm. the fundamentals now i think no i'm personally somebody who's quite happy to sit and watch you know seven hours of of 
the Ryder Cup or seven hours of the final day of the Open whilst Championship whilst at work, uh, whilst <laughs> simultaneously tweeting and, you know, potentially this year on Facebook Live at the same time. Um, so there's, there's definitely a place for these, these things. I mean, I don't think that, um, you know, these, these events, especially the ones that have real history, because that has a value, a mm. real value as well, and a value for sponsors and a value for, for fans. Um, we're not going to lose those events, but for, for what it's worth, I think the European Tour Golf Sixes idea is really bold and really quite interesting. And yes, that you know, this this first year will, you know, it's a trial, it's mm. an experiment, and they're going to see how it goes. But I think there's a lot that can be done there. You know, simple stuff. We've seen examples of it. It's you know, fifth, was it when did Tiger Woods? Um, and was it Tiger Woods and Sergio Garcia when they got mic'd up and played in the desert somewhere? And you know, it was a really good. Was this a dream you had? <laughs> it was a really good. It was a really good. It was a really good dream or TV event. Um, but I think just micing the, you know, talking about how it might change the game and change the way that that players play. Actually, if they if if players are mic'd up um, all the time, that may well over time change the way that they communicate with caddies and that might have an impact we, we don't know yeah. how this stuff can can change there's a, there's a... and the best new shorter repackaged formats are going to be where Athletics is good no, i think yeah. nitro yeah. is really really but the, I... one of the most interesting things i've seen in the last year i think and i but i think that the best ones are ultimately going to be the ones where the rights holders sit down with the broadcasters and actually figure it out because yes it's you know it's great to have the dry ice and the music and the the You're lights at the events <laughs> well you know why not? I hate dry ice. Dry we... ice has no role in sport. <laughs> if I had, there's a, there's a, I feel an, an opinion piece coming on, but mm. dry. Whenever I see dry ice at sport, I absolutely hate it. Isn't there, there's no see, no role for it. You see, I completely disagree with you. I uh, really like the dry ice, uh, particularly at the O2 Arena for the say, ATP. You know, I would go as far as say, if if there is dry ice, I know it's a shit event. That's the, that's pretty much. That's a rule. That's a Gillis rule. You can have that one. Thanks, Richard. Can't I wait think. For the column. Yeah. I think we've got a little bit off topic there. Um, the <laughs> the point I was about to make was that uh, you can conflate attention spans or, or changing habits with lifestyles here, and I think you know lifestyles is a big part of it. And the, when you look at what, what's happening in entertainment, um, services like Netflix are producing more ambitious television than we got used to in the period immediately before. You're, you're getting less of the kind of throwaway sitcoms or formulaic dramas. You're getting stuff that actually engages people's attention over a very you're long period both, of time. I think. You're getting both, but you're right in that it's interesting that there is an audience for quality, long-form mm. drama, you know. So that's... That should play in golf, test cricket. Well, you know, that's always the story. Stuff like day night test cricket might also have a, yeah. a role to play. But yeah. any any rights holder who is not considering Netflix, um, you know, uh, esports, any of these things as potential competitors for eyeballs is is behind the times. You know, this is not about how can I position my sport against you know this other sporting event. You know, there is that we are you know. Well, let's we all esports. Oh no no no, 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 no! We have we, but we have you know the, you know everybody has a, a, a smartphone and has so much access to so much stuff. Adam, will you be watching uh, the FIFA 17 Ultimate Team Championship on BT Sport? Uh, yeah, 
Uh, Richard, surely this is a question for Richard. It's, it's well, that's a given. Richard I think he's, well. he's definitely going to be... He might be a pundit. Um, we'll wait and see. Oh, see who they get on punditry. So Martin Ziegler, I, you know, tweeted, and I probably agree with him, that that will get higher figures than the Champions League. It will certainly be more important to... to a certain audience than the Champions League will. We are testing the attention spans of our audience here. But uh, I just thought before we wrap up, we've only got a couple of podcasts left between now and Sports Pro Live. So let's let's get another plug for that in to top and tail this. Um, David, what are you most looking forward to at Sports Pro Live? I'm looking forward to uh, all the high-level uh, chit-chat. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Richard? <laughs> i tell you what, last year, I, first of all, obviously, me and, me and my old mucker, uh, Keith Pelly, we were having a chat. But yeah, no, I, I enjoyed the whole thing. I thought as, a, as an event, two days, Wembley, is it at Wembley Stadium again? Wembley Stadium. Owen, oh, Adam, I believe you two work for Sports Pro. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could tell us what's <laughs> coming up uh, at Sports Pro Live and what you're particularly looking forward to. Well, in the spirit of part two of this podcast, we're going to have a panel on... Uh, the future for mega events. So um, I think that'd be worth looking forward to. Probably get more insight from that than from this. Let's hope. Not possible. <laughs> Not possible. Anyway, plenty of uh, plenty of chat to come uh, on the 29th and 30th of March at Wembley Stadium. No more chat to come here. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up there. Um, but thank you again to David Kushner. Thank you, Owen. To Richard Gillis. Literally any time. And to Adam Nelson. Thank you. Thanks and goodbye.